0: Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. (laughs) Fucked Up have always been caught between two worlds. Damian Abraham, the band's lead vocalist, was bloody and sweat-drenched in the band's early years, and he remains an electromagnetic presence today, prowling the stage and growling like an attack dog. But since forming in Toronto 22 years ago, Fucked Up have mutated and evolved at Abraham's back. Led by guitarist and primary songwriter Mike Halliuchuk, they've grown more ambitious with each passing release. They unexpectedly burst into semi-mainstream consciousness with the metatextual hardcore punk opera David Comes to Life in 2011. But that was just the beginning of their audaciousness. They released the ninth installment in their Zodiac series, a record for each of the years in the Chinese Zodiac in 2021, and it was an almost absurdly vast thing, a wonderful, proggy concept album, stacked with guest features, indecipherable plot twists, and detours into folk and funk. In that sense, their new album, One Day, could be considered a back-to-basics project. Haliachuk wrote and recorded the album in secret in a day, split across three eight-hour sessions. He then passed it off to his bandmates with the remit that they, too, limit themselves to a 24-hour window to write and record their parts alone. Abraham wrote lyrics again, the first time he's done so, with one exception, since Fucked Up's 2014 LP, Glass Boys. Abraham snarls about gentrification and fatherhood, and the one song that Halyachuk sings, Cicada, is about the very real grief of seeing friends pass away and trying to carry their legacies forward. There are no unreliable narrators fighting for supremacy here. No psychedelic dreams. But One Day is still a huge sounding album. Fucked Up were as intense as they were in their early days, and as gloriously melodic with their power-pop guitar lines as they have been ever since David. They sound, above all, vital. When I spoke to Abraham and Hallie the other week, they represented the two poles of Fucked Up with an almost comic perfection. Abraham, the bombastic punk archivist with his own podcast and an unimaginably large record collection, was an open book. He riffed on punk history and let slip that the band already had another LP with the same process, it's called Another Day, ready to go. Halyachuk, the unrelenting songwriter, went deeper into his and the band's process and his constant need to keep writing. And he also got mad that Abraham kept talking about Another Day, which the band isn't supposed to mention yet thanks for joining me and, and congratulations on the album thank you
1: yeah it's weird it's it it feels uh like i felt so detached kind of from the last one in terms of the actual content of the record like i, I feel like the last record one of my favorite records we've done but i just hadn't written anything for it by choice you know it was something where mike tried to get me to write and i just didn't write anything for it so mike took the reins on it and you know it was a a different experience than this record where I feel like a little more engaged with the whole process because, you know, I am engaged with the process.
0: I want to get to that and like the, the distance between those two records in terms of your involvement, but just... You know, at the beginning, just to go through the process, I mean, I know a bit about the process, but our listeners might not. This is all recorded in three, eight hour chunks, right, Mike? I mean, you're like the the
2: music, the original tracks were laid down in three, eight hour chunks back in 2019. Yeah, I wanted to do it in one day, but I thought it would be like terrible to try to actually do it in 24 hours straight. Plus, like, then you have to get the person who's recording it to sit with you for a full day. So I just thought of a way to make it as close to that as possible, and we ended up with with three days, and it was pretty strict. Like I didn't have like a stopwatch, but I was counting the minutes in those first sessions. Were
0: you quite strict with yourself about not
2: thinking about things too much in between those eight hour chunks? Kind of. Like they were all they were all in the same week, and I was listening back to the tracks just to sort of get a sense of where the music was going and to try and start thinking of like the arrangements and stuff, where which song would go. And it's sort of a little bit of what else was going to be needed in terms of like the sound. But I think it was all done in like five days. And so I'd, there wasn't a whole lot of time to think because, you know, you get home late and you got to make your tea for the next morning. And then by the time you're up, it's time to go to the studio again.
0: Without well, mean to sound too basic, like why? Why do this? Especially given the sort of grandeur and sprawling nature of, of, of like the conceptually of other fucked up records. Why try and scrunched this into a day?
2: I think just because of how long it was taking us to, to make records. Like, You're the Horse took six years. Dozer Dreams took two years. Like, it was set up as a convention this time, sort of like a contrivance to be like, what if we could make a record in a day? But, you know, bands like us, that's, that's how you become a band, right? Like, you have a certain amount of time to make a seven inch or whatever, it's usually a half a day. All of your greatest ideas and your greatest like urgency or whatever as a punk band comes when you're a kid and you have those kind of time limits because you have to go play a show or you can't afford to spend two years in the studio and that's like when you make your best records so I kind of was just like what if we only had a couple minutes to make this what do we sound like you know without having two years to to fiddle with it after the fact I think for me
1: the the time limitation came from the fact that like I had to get home to make dinner for the kids or pick up the kids so for me I did mine in like four hour chunks and did it over weeks of, of spread out kind of time in between sometimes months in between um just because that's what it, it was kind of requiring like I was homeschooling for some of the record writing and recording process and so it kind of forced me to to approach writing the record and recording the record completely differently like normally I would kind of do it in a much more intense block of time but this time it took even years like and originally it was planned where I was going to try and do it much more like Mike did his where I was going to go out to Vancouver and do it in four eight-hour chunks. But then it just kind of hit a point where it was like, we can't do this because of the pandemic. And so it ended up unfolding over the course of a few years rather than uh, a few days.
0: Mike, you sort of sprung this on Damien, right? I mean, on everyone, you were just like, here's most of an album for you. I don't
2: think anyone knew I was doing it until I handed it to them. We had finished up a tour, a tour cycle, and I was like, I'm going to take a break from doing music. And that lasted for like a week, I think. And I was just like, I got it. Like, I got to do something with my hands. I've got to. I've got to make something. So I was like, what's a really cheap, fast thing to do? And I just made it. I told Jonah he wasn't allowed to even listen to it before he he started playing drums. <laughs> Not to be. I mean, have to be a dick about it, but like also just to give him try to give the musicians like the same pure experience of writing as I had, you know what I mean? But yeah, it wasn't like a a big wind-up, like usually our records are. It was just like, I have some time, I need to get back into the studio or I'll go crazy.
1: I think when we got the record, it came, like the band kind of finished up in a very poetic kind of way in terms of touring, where we were touring in Australia, we played New Zealand, and then that was kind of it. We were very fed up with each other. And I remember Mike and I got into an argument on stage because Mike's volume was too loud for me and we got and we got into an art disagreement about that. And I stormed off that was kind of like, wow, that was, that's the end of this. (laughs) And then Mike's like taking a break from music and then also the record shows up. I don't know. I think I appreciated the opportunity to get to write a record again. And then with the pandemic kind of coming as I was starting to write the record, it felt like this was going to be the last time I recorded because it felt like hardcore and punk and, and music in general might not come back. Like there were days in Toronto here. You couldn't walk down the street at the same time as someone else. Like the people would cross the street, you know? And so there was just like, uh, this is, this is it, you know, there was like a fatalism to it this time. That wasn't sort of the self-imposed fatalism that I had on glass boys. The fatalism this time was this fatalism that it felt like the, the world was
0: in sort of this cataclysmic event. I was wondering about that. It sort of alluded to in some of the press materials that you felt that there was a finality to it. And I guess since things have opened up again, I've sort of blocked a lot of that stuff out. It definitely had those moments where I thought live music might not come back. Although that was in a very precarious position. But it's interesting thinking about like, you just thought that music might not return.
1: Well, I just thought that people might not need what we do. That was it ultimately is that What we did was kind of this amazing, but ultimately non-essential service in the time when everything became about essential services. So it became, are we going to be afforded the luxury of being able to go into the studio and and write a record, which is incredibly luxurious, you know? And I I very much appreciate that, going in and writing this record. I got to travel a lot more between Glass Boys and this. And I was, I was very entitled, I think, to being a musician and, and living this lifestyle when we were, you know, doing Glass Boys. Not that I don't like those songs, but I think a lot of it was born out of this sort of like paranoia and, and dark thoughts about what it meant to be a musician and quote unquote selling out and legacy and all these sorts of things that are once again, non-essential to the human experience and I think going in and traveling the world and seeing how lucky I am to be where I am in any position but let alone to be where I am as a musician you know it means I I think I approached writing this record there's a lot more sort of like as much as it was fatalist about where the world is there's also like a lot of joy trying to reconcile like a lot of different things because I felt like I was tying things up but also like it's about loving family you know or loving my kids and struggling to be a good dad and things like, you know, essential, essential things that are essential to my human experience.
0: Mike, your parts were obviously recorded and conceived of before lockdowns, but like in many ways, this album couldn't really exist without the lockdowns and without the pandemic. I mean, there are only a handful of bands who have really embraced that remote style of recording and, and staying out of the studio and doing things separately. But this is kind of an example of people really splitting off and doing it that way. It it feels like a product of that time.
2: That's kind of how Fucked Up is recorded for like 10 years. I haven't been in a session with Damien probably since David. I'm not allowed to go to Sandy's bass sessions. Me and Jonah do a lot of stuff together. And Josh, he does it on his own or he he just skips it. I think Fucked Up like invented pandemic style recording.
0: You mentioned you're writing... Process for this
2: how long had it been since you'd written lyrics uh nine
1: years oh no that's not true after my mom passed away i wrote a song for an australian only seven inch that um like is i guess one of the most obscure fucked up records but yeah it was before that it was glass boys because i, I kind of felt like glass boys i said everything i wanted to say you know like i was like okay i've, I've laid it all out to bear you know and, and and that was the problem when we started writing dose your dreams is the lyrics I wrote were really bad. Like I was doing a wrestling TV show. I was raising the kids. I was, you know, just so checked out. That's why I think Dose is such a beautiful record, because Mike just took that record and wrote everything, you know, and just really kind of like carried like the creative side of the band on his back completely for that record. And horse, I guess it was you and Jonah, but like, you know, those those two records are kind of like this period in the band where Mike was kind of like doing all the lyric writing again, which is how the band started. Like, because the band started before I was even in the band. So in the very beginning, I'm singing all Mike's lyrics too, because these were songs that were kind of written or conceived of with Josh, you know? And so it wasn't until kind of Hidden World that we started splitting the lyric writing. And then after Glass Boys, I was like, well, you know, that's three records. That's all I need. I was content to be a seven inch only band too. Mike and I had a plan where we we're like we could be a killed by death band, like one obscure seven inch and that's it. You know, at every stage it's been a surprising, uh, <laughs> a surprising extension.
0: Did you collectively make the decision that Damien would write lyrics for this one, or when? How did that happen and when?
2: No, it was always on the table. That's like our my default is like we're going to split it, and then if we don't split the the lyrics, it's because something came up. But yeah, that to me in my head that's always like our the default position is we do half the each.
1: And there were times during the pandemic even where I was like, ah, oh, geez, like these lyrics, like, what am I going to write about? And I think that's when it really kind of like, you know, kind of hit me what I was going to write about. I was going to like write about what I was seeing, you know, and what I was experiencing this time and, and the things that I loved and the things that I I don't want to see die. Yeah. Like I, I really did feel like sort of this inspiration kind of come back throughout the pandemic where, I'm really enjoying writing lyrics. Like Mike and I are kind of like working on the follow-up lyrically right now, "Another Day," which is meant to be like an echo record. So uh, I'm really enjoying writing it. You know, I'm finding a lot of fulfillment in kind of sitting up late at night, listening to songs, and writing lyrics, and taking time, and you know, clocking my minutes to make sure it's within the 24-hour parameters of writing
0: the new record. But I was wondering that: is there the same immediacy to the lyric writing process? There there is to the to the musical process.
1: I spread it out because the thing is like this record's gonna be out there forever. And you know, Mike and I, when we were in the early days of fucked up, and even some of the later days, like when we're writing stuff for David Comes to Life, where we had so many songs to do and we're writing songs in the studio. There's songs where I I'm like, oh my God, like I, I wish I could write those lyrics again. Or songs that I passed on even where I'm just like, oh I'm so checked out. So this time having the ability to kind of spread it out. That's what you need creatively, you know? It's like, I'm never pretentious enough to think that I'm I'm writing poetry, but at the same time, I, I kind of am, right? Like you're trying to write something that's going to l- stand the test of time, at least for yourself, when you go back and you listen to it or when your kids force you to listen to it in the car. And you're like, I hope I hope I don't cringe when I go back and listen to this work. Or it was not too cringe, as my kids like to say to me.
0: There were times, I guess it was around Those You Dreams, I mean, Damon, you were talking quite openly about like limiting your involvement in the band, not like there was any animosity or anything, no bad blood, just like, I think the way you, you put it to paraphrase was like, it would be interesting to see how this band will evolve when I'm not sort of more heavily involved. You seem to be more involved now. I think it's fair to say like that some of that didn't really come to pass exactly how you expected.
1: Yeah, like I think at that time, I kind of thought maybe I would have another career, but also at the same time, I still feel like, you know, my vocal range is limiting for the songs that Mike and Jonah are kind of capable of producing as a sort of like songwriting production team. And I find it really fascinating to kind of hear stuff they do with other people singing, be it that rec- record they did with Riley or be it that record that Jonah did with all the different vocalists singing, you know. So I, I was kind of like, well, maybe it would become like something like a a production duo, a songwriting duo with different vocalists, or, you know, I'd still be there, but, you know, there'd be other people kind of stepping in to do some more songs, but this record's just us. You know, there's no guests this time around. Uh, next record, there might be occasional vocalists, guests, vocalists, but it, it feels like Fucked Up's evolved to the point where it's kind of like, this is fucked up. It's Mike and I writing songs together. It's Joan and Mike working on these songs. It's Sandy writing her parts. It's Josh coming in and doing what he wants <laughs> and and I was just kind of like figuring it out. I think there's a little more contentment with this being fucked up than sort of this anxiety and fear if I was limiting it or limiting myself uh, outside of it) and I keep-
0: It's interesting to hear you openly bring that up on like Nothing's Immortal, which seems to be about that to an extent, I mean, about more than that, but but openly referencing that.
1: Well, I think, no, I think Nothing Immortal has been misconstrued a little bit because that actually is about losing faith in your punk icons and having people that you respect turn out to be not who you expect. Kind of realizing that you can love the song. But not necessarily find where the songwriters at in the present day, where you're at. I think people are thinking it's me singing about being fed up with punk rock myself. No, I love punk rock. You know, I think I'm more committed to being in this band now than than ever. But at the same, yeah, I think that song is is much more about other people than about me.
0: from a musical standpoint, you're talking about people taking things further than the originals could have conceived. I went to see Turnstile a few weeks ago. That lineup also had like Snail Mail and JPEG Mafia on it. Obviously Ice Age, who when it comes to like occasionally using weird symbols or an interesting one, but the Armed are another band who are like doing pretty revolutionary stuff. You've had a hand in that, and I think maybe opening those doors like sonically for these bands to maybe push a little bit further. Do you feel that? Do you And do you feel a sense of, I don't know, pride maybe
2: uh, at having done some of that? No, I don't know because like writing music isn't this, it's not this calculated thing. For us, it's just like we've spent so many times, so much time collecting records, so much time listening to stuff, so much time in the studio. And I was always kind of surprised at the the reaction to stuff. Our records was always like, can you believe that they have a saxophone on this song? Because it's like, you know, there's saxophones all over the X-Ray Specs record, which Is from the '70s, and I think that like that kind of musical innovation, we're not really the purveyors of anything. We're reacting to stuff that we listened to when we were like 15 year olds that came out in this, you know, in the '60s and the '70s. And I think punk rock bands like always, they always try to iterate that stuff. It's just a matter of like how much it gets paid attention by people that don't listen to that kind of music. You know what I mean? Like, there's always a turnstile. And there's always a reaction to it from mainstream journalists kind of being like, can you believe that this punk band has like a drum machine? But it's like, that's sort of always been the case. And it's like the mainstream music only allows the focus to sort of fall in one band at a time. When really it's like, we're all in this like incredibly diverse scene that's like been happening for decades. We started as a very strict sort of aesthetic project where our records were based on literally one record label. And that's... That was our ideal is to make records that look like they're on on danger house but then we just sort of admitted that like we all listen to tons of different music and why wouldn't that stuff show up in the music we make but yeah i don't think i don't think we're like really trailblazing
1: the thing that's am- amazing to me is like watching how there's a sort of like continuity in in the history of punk and you can kind of see how it all connects. And I love seeing like how all these bands do connect to each other and how everyone's kind of interconnected. And I feel like really blessed that I get to be a part of that. And that was kind of like the only goal that I think we had when we started this band was like, what wouldn't it be amazing if we like impacted this in some way, you know, or like had a ripple and Mike and I are into like, especially at that time we were like in, in punk rock school like school intensively like we would go to the music library at the university of toronto and find old music books about different scenes like you know and read these things and pour over these things and mike was doing this incredible fanzine that he would interview the most obscure awesome people and write articles about danger house records and you know it felt like punk rock university at the house at that time and so we were listening to like really obscure bands and so i think you were trying to hear like literally
2: every punk record that was ever recorded and probably have.
0: Damien, do you worry at all about passing it down to a generation that like, you mentioned this on the record. I mean, Lords of Kensington is about gentrification, like writ large, but I was even reading that interview that you guys gave to Pitchfork ages ago when you guys were playing at the Great Hall that was like an institution that like brought the community together and between just the passing of time and the and the growth of condos and and the pandemic where there seems to have been this transfer of wealth from smaller independent places to bigger corporations like is it hard to feel hopeful about passing that down to a generation that maybe doesn't have the same like cultural resources i think the thing
1: that makes this so so awesome and so amazing of a culture is that it is adaptable and it is going to find a way to su- survive and thrive And it's not even passing it down. Like you don't have a choice. You kind of get excommunicated from it almost, or not even excommunicated, but like it just, it passes you by a little bit. I know some people really disagree with me and they're definitely lifers too. There's people that are lifers in DIY hardcore. So it's not like there's a defined timeline on it, but the reality is because of the the vibrancy of it, it's got to kind of like find new fertile ground to kind of like exist. And it might not be with a band that's trying to play bigger venues, or it's not going to be necessarily with a band playing bigger venues. Like, you know, like Turnstile, as much as this is their moment as the biggest hardcore band in the world, this is also their moment where they kind of transcend it a little bit and become something else. And there's going to be a group of kids that will probably reject Turnstile. Like to me, Quicksand is one of the greatest hardcore bands of all time. And that's because as much as Quicksand is a hardcore band that inspired like Dallas Green and all these different people. They're also a band that inspired Jamie Hapri to form Hapri because he hated them so much. He thought it was terrible that they were considered a hardcore band. It's sort of this constant sort of like evolution and change where the next group of kids are going to want to do it a different way and are going to have to do it a different way. They're not going to have these practice spaces or these like weird anarchist bookstores that we used to have in Kensington Market. Like that we used to be able to play like the anarchist free space or who's Emma, but they're not going to have these things. They're going to have to figure a way to do it. And it's going to be different and it's going to be maybe not work for what worked for us, but it's going to work for them.
0: So you guys are already working on, you said it was called Another Day?
1: Yeah. Another Day is like the title, right, Mike? That's what we're going with? Well, we're not really talking about it yet. I've been talking about in interviews, so... It's, yeah, I you have. Well, that's the thing. There's no communication. Our, I think our biggest inspiration... As a band, in a lot of ways, is this band Gaze from Japan, who just broke up, rest in peace Gaze, the greatest hardcore band of all time. And the legend was that they knew nothing about each other and they would just get together and practice five hours a week and then go home and live their separate lives. And then they'd play shows and they'd play one hour straight through, no stops. And so when Fucked Up started, we wouldn't stop and stuff like that. You know, but the reality is we're a band that just (laughs) kind of is living that life, but we don't have those five-hour jam sessions to kind of catch up On what the plan is, so (laughs) this is how we're catching up on the plan. (laughs) Apparently I'm not supposed to talk about it. It might not, it may or may not exist. This is what it's like. I think the conflict in the band has been like, Mike and I both have mental health issues, but our coping mechanisms are very different. Mine is to get into panic situations and panic mode and extrovert. Like I go on stage and that's what I do. I'm just basically having like this weird panic attack and Mike's is to like close off. So I think that's like dictates our way that we approach the band. I want to be as open as possible. And Mike wants to keep it all close to the chest. And that's the duality that is fucked up. (sighs)
2: miss the vitamin water era of indie rock like showing up to south by southwest in 2012 and like every show is sponsored by vitamin water and there's flavors you've never heard of remember those simple times that
1: weird period where something there was a glitch and they're like yo let's let's market to indie rock fans yeah and like every south by southwest show was sponsored by like just drinks so many drinks and then no clothing Then there'd be like pop-up clothing stores you just like walk in and they'd be like hey do you want pants it's like, oh my gosh, pants-free pants.
0: Fader Fort was sponsored by Levi's for years.
1: Fader Fort was awesome. We got to play the Fader Fort one time, and it was it was so fun. It's weird going to Austin now because like that was like such an incredible city for just like all our friends coming together. And at South by Southwest, it really felt like we were all like the rats running under the the door of the kitchen and just raiding it. We had all our friends come up from like Houston or Dallas and. You know, friends that would travel in, and and we just like run around, like having fun at at all parties, and not me. You you would
2: be you would. What are you talking about?
1: You. Would be I was the only one who had a
2: license. I was waiting in the minivan for you guys to have bullshit, <laughs> bullshit. I would
1: eventually we stopped even hanging out. I would stay with my friends there, and you guys would stay with different friends there. Actually, I think that happened right away. We all started staying at different places when we were in Austin because we we all had different friends and different groups down there. But now we go down, it's like. A lot of people moved away. A lot of a lot of people have passed away. It's it's weird how you go to these places and eventually it's like there's a lot of uh, a lot of years and a lot of baggage on tour. You know, like tour ends up becoming a, a process,
0: emotional process, just because like things keep coming back. The like the more places.
1: Yeah, just like I think going to places where you have friends that aren't there anymore, like they've passed away, or you've lost touch with them, or they've moved away. You know and then you're in the city and it's you know in particular austin because we spent so much time there luckily there's people in austin that we're still friends with and we still get to hang out with but a lot of times you're kind of like spending time with with ghosts or their mom yeah we, we last tour was really hard i think we did a, a tour of the of texas and we lost uh, a, f- a few friends down there and it was difficult to kind of go to these places and just kind of like we we're doing david comes to life 10-year anniversary and playing those songs 10 years later, and it's a whole record that we wrote kind of naively 10 years ago prior to actually losing people, now like 13 years ago. And then to be bright back in those songs that you wrote kind of like from a, you know, I wonder what it's like to, to a place where you've lost a lot of people. It just made those songs feel so different to perform again on that tour. Like it was really, uh, I don't know, I'm glad we don't have to do it again
0: did that sort of influence the writing of cicada on this record
2: i think that happened after the tour was after yeah yeah it's definitely from the same place i mean it was difficult to try to think of a way to react to all that stuff but it did feel like there needed to be as much as i didn't want this record to be like about losing things and i wanted to be about moving forward it was hard to think of making a record without reacting to certain things that we'd lost for sure
1: we got back on the road And our first real show back on the road was playing LA and we're doing David Comes to Life. And that morning we heard about uh, Dallas Good from the Sadie's passing away. And Dallas was like a a foundation of this place, you know, and and losing him. He was a member of Career Suicide with Jonah too, right? Like he was family. And I don't know, it just felt like... Yeah, the losses keep coming, you know, and I think losing those people that were close to the band, inspirational to the band, you know, family to the band, it just makes it um I don't it makes it it makes me more uh more grateful that I get to be here for the time that I'm here and that I get to be able to do this and keep kind of sharing it and remembering them and bringing their names up and sharing in their memories with people, you know, as, as much as it hurts, it's I'm grateful that I get to do that. It's it's one of my favorite songs on the record. Like I even musically, when Mike wrote it, I was like, "Damn, I wanted that one." Mike claimed it. It just is hard. It, like it, it's so different. Like even looking back, like Glass Boys. Like you know, we had fam. Like my mom has passed away. My stepmom passed away. Like it was just like kind of a consistent barrage of losing people in your life, and not just experiencing it as a person, but seeing it how it affects your kids, and seeing how it affects people in, around them, and just all you can do is try and appreciate every second that you have and try and make the most of it and try and enjoy it and try and feel blessed in it and i know it's uh it's always been a struggle for me on the road to do that and i'm finding it less of a struggle now
0: took that sort of hiatus from writing lyrics. You broke that for that seven inch, which I I didn't realize to write about your mother. It seems like with the, with the losses that you've all suffered over the last few years, there would have been plenty of opportunities as a band and as lyricists separately to confront this. And you have in some ways, but this seems to be a completely new, I don't know if it's, if it's a more like enlightened, it seems like a more sort of enlightened way of approaching it and a more forward thinking way. but. What changed? What allowed you to write about it in that way? And what changed your mindset towards loss like
1: that? I think when I wrote that song about my mom passing away, that was coming away from just like, that was a really rough vocal session. Like it was just Dylan and I in the studio. It was just like a rough experience in cathartic, you know, and rough when I'm, when I'm saying it's rough, it was a cathartic experience, but it certainly wasn't like a, a fun, necessarily creative experience. I think losing friends that are creative forces and creative inspirations in your life i i feel like there's almost like a a need to honor them you know especially people that supported your band you know and and people that believed in you in times when you didn't believe in yourself and people that i would talk to and get inspiration from the stuff that they were doing musically i feel like it just makes you realize how blessed you are to get to do this for the time that you get to have it and that it can go away at any time And for any number of reasons, you know, it can be anything. And that's the tragedy of of human existence. As much as I want to say, you know, like, and and, and I do, and these things did break me as a person. It wasn't like I was writing that night, like, oh, this would be a great song. But at the same time, like, eventually when you're sitting down to write these songs, you want to honor these people that, you know, meant so much to you.
0: That was Damian Abraham and Mike Haliachuk in conversation with The Fader. Fucked Up's new album, One Day is out this Friday, January 27, via Merge. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivy for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, we're now on the new live radio app, Amp. Download it from the App Store now. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.